Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, let your kingdom come. Amen. What does it mean when we pray, thy kingdom come? Sometimes we think that this is referring to our final glory and victory in heaven, that the coming of the kingdom is reaching heaven and being with God for all eternity, the culmination of all that the scriptures are preparing us for. However, while it's true that the kingdom will include the culmination, that's not all that it is. We're not really praying just for the fullness of the kingdom that we should be delivered out of this world into heaven. But when we pray for the kingdom to come, remember, it is on earth as it is in heaven. Keeping his name holy, his kingdom coming, and his will being done is on earth as it also is in heaven. Which means it's bringing together two things into our present lives. On the one hand, the ascension is about Jesus going up. But at the same time, the angels tell the apostles to look down. Jesus goes up on ascension, but on Pentecost, Jesus comes back down through the Holy Spirit. We are talking about overlapping two realms. The kingdoms that we see in this world and the kingdom that is from above, heaven and earth. That's why the apostles are asking Jesus this question, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is giving them the answer that it's not for them to figure out the times and the seasons for how this is going to be carried out and completely fulfilled and culminate in heaven, but it is for you to know that the kingdom comes when he sends the power of the Holy Spirit upon you at Pentecost. Then you will be my witnesses, and his kingdom comes. His kingdom comes on earth, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is on earth that God's kingdom is coming. But at the same time, when the disciples finish talking to Jesus, he ascends into heaven. What is the first thing that they go and do? We didn't read that far, but if you read ahead, they pray. They pray. Which means that they understand that even though Jesus has gone up, he's still with them. They're praying. They're both on earth and in heaven at the same time. And the Holy Spirit makes this possible. So in our sermon today, we want to consider how this kingdom comes both on earth and in heaven at the same time by transforming our mind so that we don't think of things in terms of either or earth and heaven, but both and in the life of the church. And we're going to use Colossians 3 as the basis for our thoughts today, where Paul says, If you then have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Jesus sends out his apostles to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, he's talking about this very thing. Bringing together what Jesus is doing on his throne at the right hand of God in heaven with what the church is doing down here on this fallen ground. This is what Paul is getting after in the whole letter to the Colossians, making Christ known bigger and bigger so that the world would see that Christians don't live only on the earth, but they also live a heavenly life. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that the God which we could never see, who dwells in heaven, has become visible so that we could see him, we could listen to him, and they ate and, they ate and drank in his presence. They were taught by him. He even washed their feet. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which means on earth, Jesus is expressing who God is, that we could never see or touch. He's putting it into terms that we can know and see and touch on earth, his incarnation. He is the creator of all things, but in his coming, he is reconciling all things to himself. His redemption, Paul says, is through the body of his flesh, so that he had to become like us in every way, and in his body on earth, he would do the heavenly miracle of the gospel. His suffering and his death and his resurrection, the fullness of God dwelt in him in his body, in his human form, in his human life, so that the kingdom of God came to earth in him, so that in Jesus we see heavenly things, however humble and even ugly at times, his form appeared. God's heavenly thoughts about us, what God thinks, his mind is revealed in Jesus, showing us his compassion, his mercy, his love, his truth, his justice, his salvation, and his wisdom for our lives and his eternal salvation. It's all in Jesus. Now, when Jesus ascends back to God, then, do we lose all of that? No. Instead, Jesus gives it all to us back here on earth through the Holy Spirit that we would continue to live the life of Christ hidden, the hidden life that is with us and in us, that the goal of the Christian faith is not to transport ourselves out of this world to get to heaven, but that heaven would transport itself into this world through us, through the preaching of the gospel, and through the living of the Christian life. That's why Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, things are no longer as they once were. What does Paul mean when he says that we should set our mind 
on things above. Does he mean that Christians live a disconnected life? A life that is distant and far away from the reality and struggles that everyone else goes through because our life is above. Our thoughts are above. Is it a disillusioned view of the world where we just want to escape? Now, some religions do teach this. In Buddhism, it's called nirvana, the ultimate detachment. The ascension to God in Buddhism is to become so detached that you are never affected by earthly things, that the earthly life has nothing for you. There's only one problem with that. It's only about you then. And one Buddhist that lived this life came to discover that he was actually neglecting his wife and his children to the point of abandoning them because he was seeking to live that heavenly life. These thoughts have crept into Christianity as well. Over many years, in many different ways, they creep into our midst where we think that Jesus is in heaven and so the Christian life is about getting out of this body getting away from these things, that we should be guided to a higher experience of the spiritual realm, that we should commune with God directly and not worry about this body and this earthly relationships that we're connected to. In so doing, some Christians began communing with God, but then also with every other God and every other spirit and everything else that the spiritual realm can offer, because heavenly realms are not all good. They began to be led by the stars. The angels were directing their destiny. They were blessed by the agricultural changes in the seasons. They called on the earth mother, the weather spirits, the sacrificial incense that would ascend in their prayers to heaven, and they developed spiritual practices that would reflect a Buddhist type of life of disconnection. You can only eat certain foods. You must abstain from even touching anything which is considered unclean or earthly, including people, places, and they ascended into greater and greater visions. But they were never satisfied. They were never content. And in fact, it opened the door for them to justify things that they would do with their bodies, which are anything but heavenly. And some began to indulge in all sorts of ungodly practices alongside of the spiritual, because what use was this body anyway? They had fooled themselves, and they had been fooled. Paul writes about these people that are in Colossae, these Christians who have adopted other practices and merged together a sort of Jewish religion, a Christian religion, and an Eastern religion that came from the Greeks. They began to merge it all together in an effort to reach this higher Christianity, this 
sense of being born again in a way that normal Christians don't experience. And in doing so, they had to try to hide their sinfulness. Like the Pharisees, in secret, they actually practiced the same sins that they would accuse other lesser Christians of doing. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying. Which is why Paul says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting a self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. For all the religious practices that we might impose on ourselves or on others to try to make our lives better, they ultimately will not rid you of the flesh. In fact, they'll entice the flesh to find other, more devious ways to hurt people, to justify doing things that are wrong, knowing that in the end, you're not really a part of that. You're somewhere else. Jealousy, malice, slander, lying. Do not lie to one another, Paul says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So Paul says, set your mind on things above. Now, this doesn't mean what these other religious thinkers thought it meant when he says, don't set your mind on things on the earth. The hidden life we live with Christ is not an escape. It's not a higher consciousness. In fact, it's very down to earth. Christ is always down to earth. His kingdom, his throne, it comes to these places. When you look at his life and his ministry in the body and in his flesh, it was always down to earth, to the most earthy places you could go to deal with sin in its worst forms to deal with the darkness, to deal with the outcast. What Paul is getting after is what's in your mind and what's in your heart. That is the hidden life. When he's addressing this, he's talking about things that are out of control in our body, our members that are giving themselves over to sexual immorality, Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. None of us are innocent of coveting. And the, fix, the way to fix this problem is not through a self-improvement religious system, a self-made, man-made system or program for a better-looking church. There are not 12 lessons I could give you. There are not seven steps you could follow. In fact, those systems and programs left to themselves, those books that you might read, do the opposite of what you think they're going to do in the long run. They might work for a while. 
But if you don't address the mind and the heart, if your mind is not transformed by Christ living in you, the rest is just an outward show. Now, systems and programs and classes and counseling, they all have a place, but they have to be subservient to the highest truth that Paul is getting after, the hidden life. That these are not the real answer to the problems you're dealing with. There is no marriage counseling program that can get you to a better place and answer all your questions if you don't address what Paul is talking about here. Your flesh, your old self, it cannot be reformed, it cannot be improved, it cannot be rehabilitated. There's only one thing that Paul says you can do. You must murder it. You must take that old self and kill it. If any bit of it is left alive, if any bit of it is giving just a small corner office in your heart, even if you just give it a closet and shut it in a drawer and say you'll never go back and touch it again, it will eventually ruin you. Because those things will wait. They will wait as long as is necessary. They'll wait until you're weak, until your 40-day program has run out, until the circumstances of your life have taken a turn for the worse, until someone has wronged you in a way that you should have never been wronged, and then they will find you. Because the one who leads them, their captain, is much smarter than we are. In our old self, you will be fooled, and he will summon their powers when he needs them, and your house will fall, and great will be its destruction. Instead, Paul says we must deal with these in total, completely. We must put ourselves on trial and expose every corner, every darkness, every evil thing that is in us or that we have done. And that's a painful experience. That is dying to your old self. It is painful to do that, to revisit that, to self-examine yourself. It can be embarrassing if you have to confess these things to someone else. It could be costly, financially, your reputation, or it can just be painful within the guilt, the hurt of realizing what you've done. Facing those dark places is not easy, and Paul says it's a crucifixion, that your old self goes to the cross and gets put up there with Jesus to be crucified with him. And then through his grave and through his resurrection comes forth at last something new. Your whole self is reborn, resurrected, renewed, and repurposed for God. Jesus is trying to teach you that that old self is not you. And you fooled yourself into thinking that is you. And whether you're escaping 
that guilt, or you're just in despair over it, Jesus says, that's a lie. I have died and I have risen. And that old self is not you anymore. You don't need it anymore. You don't need to hang on to it anymore. And when it shows itself, it's your job in me to call it out and to put it under. Put off your old self with its practices and its habits, Paul says. Because we develop these habits, don't we? And the longer our life goes on, the more we can practice these habits over a long period of time until it's just part of us. It's ingrained in us. Which is why Paul says not just to put off the old self, but the practices and habits that go along with it. And that is a lifelong journey. That involves new practices, new habits that are led by Christ and his spirit. Put on the new self because that is who you truly are. You are a new creation. You are redeemed. You are Christ. Your identity has been hidden away and perhaps you've forgotten about it. Maybe you've ignored it, but Jesus is calling out to you and saying, you are mine. The new man, which was created according to Christ, his image, is who you are. He says, think as I think, and let me do your thinking. I will tell you what's true. I will tell you that you are redeemed, that you are forgiven, that you are set free. That that old self is not having any more power over you. It's dead. And the devil has died with it. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and... If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As you get up in the morning, you dress yourself for the day. You think about what you're going to be doing. Maybe you're going to be gardening today, so you wear the clothes appropriate for gardening. Maybe you're going to work today, so you wear business casual. Maybe you're going to church today. Maybe you're working out today. Whatever the case may be, you wake up, you set your mind on what the day is going to be, and you dress yourself appropriately. Paul says, wake up in the morning and dress yourself first with this. Christ. Whatever you do, he says, let the word dwell among you. It's not just an individual idea Paul is talking about in verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell among you, plural. We would say, y'all. Let the word of Christ dwell among y'all. So that together with him as a congregation and church, we are richly teaching 
and admonishing one another in wisdom. We are singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are giving thanks in our hearts together to God. And whatever you do, whatever you might say, whatever you might act, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus to be thankful to the Father, to cultivate gratitude every day, knowing how much he loves you, knowing how much he's given you, knowing how much he's promised to do. It is a truly heavenly mindset to think this way, to remember what really matters on earth when we think about all the things going on on earth this is not where our mind is set what matters most is what christ is doing on earth and if you recognize this not only is it going to give your heart rest which you so deeply desire not only is it going to change your outlook so that your mindset improves Not only is it going to give relationships an opportunity for reconciliation and healing that would have never been there, and not only will our church grow in fruits and faith, but ultimately Jesus says, in this you will testify of me. And the world will see that Jesus is alive here. And why Jesus is unlike anything else the world could ever offer, any religion or program or system or politics. Why this is a hope that cannot be shaken. Why this is a power that overcomes evil with good. How this is a peace that passes understanding that Jesus has good news not just for you, but for them too. And you will be my witnesses on earth as I also rule in heaven. Now remember, as you go away today, this doesn't mean that your troubles are over. It doesn't mean the struggles end. It doesn't mean the circumstances are going to improve. It doesn't mean your old self and its habits won't come back and seek to gain access again to your identity. It doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. But it does mean we're never alone. We face it all with Christ in us, with Christ as our head, thinking through us and living out his life as he once did. From temptation, from the slander he faced, from the suffering he dealt with, from the death he died, and through death to rise again, the body of Christ, the church, is living through that experience still on this earth until at last the kingdom comes in its greatest way and you are delivered to the fullness, the culmination of Christ. When he who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen.